Hi there, I'm Al. Welcome back to the Lore Research Lab, and if you're new here, welcome to the Lore Research Lab, where I ramble about Nintendo video games. This is the 101st log and the 30th discussion looking at the teal mask from Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Today's thesis, in what ways does Japanese culture appear in the teal mask? It's time to deep dive, folks. So this section will cover the bottled background, kind of just housekeeping, disclaimers, context for the episode, um, just any kind of peripheral details that need to be covered. So both logistical and game specific. So Pokemon Scarlet and Violet were released on the Nintendo Switch console in the latter half of 2022, kicking off the next generation of Pokemon games, which is Generation 9, with improved graphics from its game predecessor, um, Pokemon Legend. Arceus. Um, there's a fun overworld to explore, interesting stories to engage with, and this game, despite its technical issues and flaws, has proven to be, I'd say, a popular installment in the Pokemon franchise as a whole. Now, when uh, DLC, which is downloadable content, when DLC was announced for this game, it appeared to showcase new Pokemon, new Lanced Adventure 2, um, and new stories to become immersed in. Just different atmospheres, things that add to the Pokemon Scarlet and Violet experience, if you will. That brings us to today's episode, where I'll be uniting my interest in real-world cultures and histories with the video game world, and that's specifically with the Teal Mask. So, as this will be a very informative episode, please refer, uh, refer to the Lore Research Lab reference episodes for background on Pokemon, and if you're curious, the Battle Gimmicks episode for information on the Terrastal phenomenon in Paldea, and Paldea is the region that you adventure to in Scarlet and Violet. Um, there's also, I also have an episode reviewing Scarlet and Violet, and then the Coridon and Miraidon episode to learn how legendary Pokemon are treated in these games. So it's just, that's, those are just the episodes to listen to if um, you want to know about what's already been said about Scarlet and Violet here at the lab. Links will be provided in the description for pretty much everything I'm talking about today, um, so hopefully you can follow along nicely and at least know what sources, where, where things are coming from. So if you want to read up on stuff yourself, whether it be Pokemon or kind of descriptive information, you know where to look. Now I want to provide some context for today's episode and the ways the Teal Mask works as a region in the Pokemon universe. So this is like geographical context, if you will. So the Pokemon games have always found a way of uniting Japanese culture, in particular with the worlds it creates, whether that be subtly done or maybe more overtly. Regions in Pokemon over the years have taken inspiration from areas outside of Japan. So let me be clear that the first four regions, the Kanto, the Johto, um, the Hoenn and the Sinnoh region, I believe, are all based off of different um, areas of Japan, both in terms of like I think it's it, like I think in terms of its geographical shape, that's what it's it's based off of. But more recent games have taken inspiration from areas outside of Japan, such as France and Hawaii, which would be the regions of uh, Kalos and Alola. Um, and then Paldea itself is based on the Iberian uh, uh, Peninsula, but. Um, so you can see there's diversity there. But now we actually return to Japan for the events of the Teal Mask. Um, as the topic for today's episode, the Teal Mask, things don't take place in Paldea, they take place in the land of Kitakami. And Kitakami is the name of an actual area in Japan located in the Tohoku region. Um, so it's, it's using an actual place's name for a fictional 
region in the Pokemon universe. So that's that's kind of interesting. So you, as the player, are informed. Uh, this is the basic premise, you could say, for the Teal Mask storyline. You, as the player, are informed that you struck gold in a lottery to go on a field trip to Kitakami, a, di a distant region some ways away from Paldea. You'll need to take a plane to get there. The goal of the trip is for you to forge relationships with the locals ex and explore the new land while respecting local customs. You meet Carmine and Kieran, two siblings with very different personalities from the Blueberry Academy. Introduce you by Briar, a teacher from, uh... Blueberry Academy itself, who's endorsing this trip alongside Professor Jacques, who belongs to Naranja or Uva Academy from Scarlet and Violet, respectively. So the basic premise you can tell is pretty straightforward. You're set out to accomplish tasks that are laid out for you. You visit three signboards that describe a folktale known to all in Kitakami, and then you participate in the festival of masks, celebrating the beings described in said folklore. Of course, things don't simply play out that way. You don't just simply go to your signboards and go to the festival and everyone's hunky-dory, you know? For mysterious happenings will occur on your journey in Kitakami. All is not as it seems. And with this context out of the way, um, I'll be getting into the Teal Mask spoilers. You've been warned. This entire episode, I'd say, is a gigantic spoiler for the Teal Mask DLC. And unravel how Japanese culture is represented in the fictional region of Kitakami. So let me address the two new characters that we are introduced to before getting into the main story beats. This section will cover um, basically how things play out in the Teal Mask from a more storytelling standpoint. I'm not going to try and pick apart gameplay. This is not a gameplay technical episode. Anyways, Kieran, uh, Kieran and Carmine are... Ki Kieran and Carmine are key characters in your story. There we go. For one, Carmine is very headstrong, bold, says it's on her mind, and tends to boss her younger brother Kieran around. And he's the complete opposite of her, as being timid um, and shy. And he wishes to improve as a Pokemon trainer compared to his more confident sister. I think it is. It's basically trying to say that she's maybe a more efficient or better trainer than than uh, Kieran and he wants to kind of live up to that and he's also kind of curious too. Um, so while they attend Blueberry Academy abroad, Kitakami is their home. And as I describe the main story beats, which I'm about to get into, I will be saying you. You as the player. So you is just short form for that. So you as the player, this is what you experience playing through the Teal Mask. So when I say you, even if you haven't played the game, I'm just using it as a general thing. All right, so you and Kieran are... So remember, you have the quest of finding the three signboards. Briar has you partner up because there's uh, Naranja or Uva Academy students, including yourself. And then there's Carmine and Kieran. And you partner up with them. Uh, or you're partnered with one of them to go to each sign signboard together. You're you're forging relations here because they're students from a different school, right? So in the story of of this game, you and Kieran are paired up to be each other's partners. I think Carmine kind of pushes for that to happen because Carmine's like, oh, since you like the protagonist so much, you must want to be their partner for the signboard stuff. And he was like, well, uh, okay, fine. And then you agree to it. Um, so you pair up to each other's partners in locating the three signboards around Kitakami and taking photos with said signboards, like I said, to commemorate the job well done. There, you did it. You saw the signboard, you read it, and then you took a photo to indicate that you've done so. And this is when we learn about the story of the Loyal Three and the Ogre 
at a location named Loyalty Plaza. So this is the folk tale that's described on these signboards. So signboard number one, again, is in Loyalty Plaza, and I'm going to read out uh, what we get in the game. Quote, long, long ago, there was a fearsome ogre in the land of Kitakami. The ogre made its home in the mountain behind the village, frightening all who ventured there. One day, the ogre came down from the mountain in a terrible rage, causing great fear in the village. By some stroke of luck, Okidogi, Monkey Dory, and Pheasantipity all happened to be there as well. The three Pokemon laid down their lives to fend off the ogre and send it back to the mountain. In admiration, the people of the village bestowed upon this brave trio the title, the Loyal Three. Their remains were given a proper burial, and the statues of the three were erected above the site." End quote. So that's what we see at signboard number one, and uh, then you can actually also see their resting place. Feels very like almost touristy, historical, right? So you take a photo at the signboard. The second signboard is visited in short order, which reads the following, located at Kitakami Hall. Quote, the ogre possessed four mysterious glimmering masks. It is said that depending on the mask the ogre donned, the power of its cudgel would change. When wearing the teal mask, it could bring life back into withered greenery around it. When wearing the crimson mask, it could turn a candle's flame into a raging inferno. When wearing the blue mask, it could stop the very flow of a river. When wearing the ashen gray mask, it could easily break the hardest stone in two. Before the loyal three fell, they wrested away three of the ogre's masks, greatly weakening it." End quote. So then sometime after this, after seeing the, well, not sometime, I guess, it, it does happen relatively quickly after this um, signboard reading, you and Kieran travel to visit the dreaded den, located upwards behind Kitakami Hall on Oni Mountain. Oni Mountain is actually quite large in terms of the scope of geography in this game, but it's not like the dreaded den isn't actually that far from Kitakami Hall. So once there, once at the dreaded den, Kieran battles you in his pursuit to become stronger and ultimately loses. It appears something was watching your battle, but no. We'll see about that later. The Festival of Masks is set to start sometime afterward. You're provided a Jinbei to fit in with the locals and immerse yourselves in uh, the culture. Um, the Jinbei, which is an article of clothing, depict the loyal three on them, showing that this uh, that to this day they are honored by everyone. Um, you also learn that the three masks recovered by the loyal three have been preserved in Kitakami Hall as a kind of mark of the loyal three's hard work. Um, also, uh, Kier, uh, I keep mixing up their names. Carmine explains that Kieran, unlike others in Kitakami, is actually a fan of the ogre, believing the ogre to be cool in its own right and not grouping himself with others who prefer the loyal three. And as such, he wears an ogre mask while everyone wears one of the loyal three masks. Because this, this is called the Festival of Masks, right? So the whole kind of vibe is that you wear the Jinbei that depict uh, the loyal three, and then Commonly, people also wear a mask that represents one of the loyal three, but th this is where Kieran's different, where he's actually wearing an ogre mask instead. Um, you participate in festival activities and you eat sweets, you do the ogre ousting uh, challenge, um, which is popping lots of balloons and hoping Pokemon don't steal uh the goods that you collect all that kind of stuff carmine has a high score in it too after you do all those things a childlike figure appears behind kitakami hall where few people are gathered you will not be seen uh if you go around here um you have uh well <laughs> you follow the figure and you see that it's wearing a teal colored mask hmm. you have a pleasant initial interaction with the uh 
you could say the innocent being before you it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem one way or the other it's kind of a neutral interaction actually um but carmine follows you here and she exclaims and is surprised to see you with this uh figure that has a very short stature um now the figure startled by her sudden appearance and it ascends up the steps and briefly loses its footing the mask falling off its face its mask looks just like the teal mask Kieran wears the ogre mask he wears Carmine initially thinks the figure, you know, this being was a lost kid, but you put the pieces together and realize this is the ogre the signboards describe. Um, the ogre that is feared by the villagers. When Kieran meets up with you both, Carmine, intending to keep this encounter a secret, pretends like nothing happened. Her reasoning for uh, hiding this from Kieran was based on the fact that out of everyone, Kieran would have been the happiest to see the ogre, and instead you and carmine saw the ogre and not him worried that he'll become sensitive knowing he missed this rare meeting she intends to hide this from him the ogre forgot to recollect its mask so you hold on to it for the time being the following day you and carmine head to her grandfather's house to learn more about the teal mask that was dropped by the ogre uh, she gets karen to leave the house so he isn't aware of what has and is about to transpire and after shooing him away her grandfather says that this mask belongs to the poor ogre and questions why it is in your possession. Carmine then asks about the wording of poor. Why would someone have pity on the ogre? Um, and it suggests that her grandfather feels sympathy for the ogre. So grandpa explains that the story the signboards describe is actually false and the roles were reversed. The loyal three were deceitful and scheming while the ogre was the victim. He also reveals that the ogre is named Ogre Pond then preparing you for a tale that must not be told to anyone else. The tale itself is very detailed. Um, so I'm going to summarize the key points from Grandpa's narration, just kind of convey some, like, the key, the key stuff. So, the true story about the Loyal Three and the Ogre was passed down by word of mouth in the family. Um, Grandpa, the family, Kieran, Carmine, their family, um, they are a family of mask makers, meaning that no one else in uh, Masui Town or Kitakami knew this truth. By the way, I don't know why I didn't mention that earlier, but the main town where the community center is located, where most of the housing is, is known as Masui Town. Um, and Kitakami Hall is some is a short walk away up the hill from Masui Town. Anyways, um, so uh, to reiterate, no one else in Masui Town or Kitakami know the truth about the Loyal Three and the Ogre, but he knows because it's been passed down in the family. A long, long time ago, the Ogre and a man arrived in Kitakami. They were feared for looking different from the average Kitakami citizen, forcing the pair to hide away in Oni Mountain in isolation from the happenings below. A mask maker took pity on the pair, creating several masks for the two to use. By wearing these masks, they could mingle with others in the village without fear of being rejected. These masks were glamorous, adorned with precious jewels, and attracted all kinds of attention as the man and ogre were now able to join in on festival activities. Rumors spread far and wide about the pair, even reaching distant lands. The wondrous masks, however, began to attract more than just innocent curiosity, as a group of, a group of greedy Pokémon heard about these masks and wished to steal them for their own. Not that would be the loyal three. The trio arrived from another land in Kitakami, heading to the cave, uh, to the cave the man and the ogre resided in. The that's the dreaded den. The man was present when the trio of Pokemon attempted to make off with the masks. He managed to hold on to one of the masks, but was not able to protect the other three. The Pokemon trio, 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 
trio stole the other three masks. Hours after this occurred, the ogre returned to the cave, finding its home in ruin. All that was left were signs of a struggle and the teal mask. The ogre donned the teal mask and headed in the direction of the village in hopes of finding its friend. It instead met the greedy Pokemon who were gloating over their stolen masks. The ogre defeated them in battle, but the villagers had no idea what was happening, nor why. All they saw was a raging ogre, fear building up in each person. The villagers believed the forest that the three Pokemon had fallen trying to protect the village from the ogre. To honor their believed sacrifice, the villagers named them the loyal three and interred them with care. Wounded and weak, the ogre returned to its cave, alone and with great sadness. So the true story is upsetting and tragic as the wrong figures are being revered by the denizens of Kitakami. Carmine is frustrated that she never knew this, feeling the loyal three were wrong to be treated like heroes and immediately does a 180 where she went from being kind of, you know, fans of the loyal three to despising them. And Grandpa agrees to hold on to the mask for safekeeping and fix it, as a jewel on the mask was broken from Ogre Pond dropping it earlier. Now, unfortunately for you, and unbeknownst to you, it seems Kieran overheard the conversation, and in a moment of dramatic irony, he wonders why you aren't telling him the truth when he asks you about it. So then, sometime after this interaction with Grandpa, you head to Paradise Barrens to read the final signboard, though you find Kieran annoyed and irate like throughout the whole process. It's sorry about that, folks. So, uh, as we know, uh, Kieran is frustrated. Uh, and uh, he does not look very pleased. He wishes to battle you before reading the final signboard, but he loses his battle. And a frustrated Kieran reluctantly reads the final signboard with you, which says the following. If you see a shadowy figure approaching you outside the village at twilight, be wary. Don a mask at once and hide your face. Do so, and whether the shadow is man or monster, you'll pass each other by as fellow mask wearers. If you should meet the shadow when you have no mask in hand, then you pray that it is only a man. If it is, you will live to see another day, and you'll remember to never forget your mask again. But if it is the ogre, you'll meet your end, as do all humans whose faces are seen by it. Once it sees your face, your soul will be forfeit, and you shall never return to the village. So, very ominous description, but it reads completely differently once you know the truth about Ogre Pawn and the Loyal Three. So, while maybe that, that would be true of another ogre, but not of Ogre Pawn, and all the signboards refer to Ogre Pawn being the ogre. So, again, this is not an accurate description. Um, now, uh, the photo that you take after reading the signboard does not reflect the two of you being on good terms. Like, you're both standing off to the side. Kieran looks very upset and he's looking away from the camera, so that's that's not good. Um, but after this, you return to Grandpa and Carmine, who inform you that a special crystal is needed to fix the mask, one that can only be retrieved at the crystal pool atop Oni Mountain's peak. Now, since you're an outsider to Kitakami, Carmen's, uh, Carmen, Carmine suggests the two of you meet there together. So you acquire the necessary crystals, and then you head to Loyalty Plaza next. You and Carmine are confronted by an angered Kieran, who feels like an outcast because of the betrayal of knowledge. You and Carmine hiding the truth from him leads him to say that you're no different from the villagers from way back then who isolated the man and the ogre, or ogre pawn. So he wishes to battle you again. And after you battle him, he punches the stone near the site of the Loyal Three's burial ground. And you can see that Kieran is very mad, very, very mad. I feel like that's putting it lightly. But, however, an unexpected event occurs. From the ground emerges the Loyal Three, who escape and make their way to Kitakami Hall. They're not actually gone. They, they, 
the burial site was not because they had fallen. They have come come back now. That's great. You and Carmine realize that the Loyal Three are going to do what they failed to do all that time ago. Retrieve the masks and defeat Ogre Pawn. So upon arriving at Kitakami Hall, you find out the locals willingly gave the three masks to the Loyal Three, pleased to be blessed by their presence. That's no good. Time is of the essence for you and Carmine now, as the Loyal Three will use this opportunity to defeat Ogre Pawn once and for all. And seeing as Ogre Pawn doesn't have the teal mask or anything like that, it's, it's it, you, you gotta help it. So you, Carmine, and Kieran head to the dreaded den where you find Ogrepon being ganged up by the Loyal Three. And, I mean, they're not so loyal at the end of the day, right? They're actually technically the villains of our- well, not technically, they are the villains of the story. So Okidogi is this large bipedal creature with dog, uh, dog-like features and a formidable build. Monkey Dory is a simian-like creature, um, and Pheasantipity a pheasant-like creature. The trio enter discussions, like Okidogi, Monkey Dory, and Pheasantipity start talking to each other and they're trying to figure out how to deal with the humans that have suddenly appeared before them and are kind of interrupting their takedown of Ogre Pond. Um, so they decide who will battle you to hopefully ward you off. So Monkey Dory approaches you um, as the battler in question. After they had their discussions, Monkey Dory's like, okay, I'll, I'll take on the humans. Um, so you fight Monkey Dory and then you beat it. Now, the Loyal Three flee the scene, allowing you to save Ogre Pond. Now, knowing that Ogre Pond will be feared by the unknowing villagers, you travel around Kitakami to track down these greedy Pokemon um, who have each, be who have each pe picked a different corner of the uh, greedy and pick. I, I'm not good with words today. Each picking a different corner of the region to hide in. So Monkey Dory settles in the Wistful Fields, which is this pond in the southwest corner of Hitakami. Okidogi is in the Paradise Barrens, and Pheasantipity, Pheasantipity is off a cave entrance um, in uh, Oni Mountain, and because it's like a bird, it's able to fly, so the cave entrance that it's near is quite high off the ground. Um, each Pokemon appears to have gained strength since being revived, they stole some Kitakami mochis, which I believe the villagers at Kitakami Hall fed to them. Um, they've eaten Kitakami mochis to gain titanic form, so they're like super strong now and very large. I I remember like, so Monkey Dory is quite small, it's shorter than you guaranteed. This, it's like double your height now, having consumed those mochis. But they flee when you defeat each of the titanic loyal three um, and you successfully recover each respective stolen mask. Now each step of the way, Ogre Pond grows closer to you, developing a new bond with you uh, and it's a, it's a nice kind of experience knowing that Ogre Pond lost its friend a long time ago, has been alone since, it's nice that it's finally having some renewed hope and making a friend again. Now, after recovering all the masks, Kieran actually worked hard, despite his grandpa saying that this story should not be shared with anyone, Kieran worked hard at convincing the villagers that the myths were wrong, the roles reversed. And thankfully they listened, rewarding him for his efforts as Ogre Pond is now allowed into Mossway Town. So, um, things are, uh... Things are, are good now. They're, they're better because people actually know the truth. The village head thanks you, Carmine and Kieran, for opening their eyes to the truth and recognizing Ogrepan to be the one who should actually be celebrated. Um, the teal mask that belongs to Ogrepan is also fixed thanks to Grandpa, and with all the masks back in Ogrepan's possession, it is time to return to the dreaded den. 
in a sense, it's time to go home, you could say. Now, when the three of you return to Ogre Pond's home, Kieran's dormant frustrations arise again, this time in the form of jealousy. Kieran wished Ogre Pond became close to him instead of you, as he always believed in Ogre Pond when no one else did, and you being an outsider doesn't help in this situation. He, he, his home is Kitakami. Um, he grew up there. He may not necessarily live there anymore as he goes to school at the Blueberry Academy, but it's the same kind of sentiment as like, well, I believed in this before you did, and you just kind of waltz up in here and now Ogre Pond likes you more. I don't get that. So that's like, um, uh, that's his, uh, that's his logic. And this isn't helped by Ogre Pond being hesitant to return to the dreaded den as it wishes to travel with you. It's choosing you over Kieran. And Kieran, knowing this, still suggests that one final battle should decide things. Whoever wins gets to have Ogre Pond by their side. Now, after you win the battle, because you do, Kieran remains again angered, frustrated by these circumstances, and I believe he runs away. Carmine is regretful that things turned out this way. Um, she feels bad. Like, I, she thought she was helping her brother by not revealing the truth to him, but because he overheard the entire kind of conversation, um, and also hearing Carmine wanting to keep this a secret from him, like, it's all very upsetting for him. Um, anyways, Ogre Pawn definitely wants to travel with you. And you beating Kieran, it's like, well, basically, Ogre Pawn just needs to join you now. But it will only join you on the condition that you beat Ogre Pawn in battle. Now, here's the really cool part about Ogre Pawn and why I wanted you to listen to the uh, Terrastall phenomenon in the Battle Gimmicks episode. So each of its masks give Ogre Pawn a different terrestrialized typing and form. So the Wellspring mask makes it become part water type, the hearth flame mask allows it to become part fire, and the cornerstone mask makes it part rock, while the teal mask emboldens its power as a grass type. So Ogre Pond is a grass type Pokemon, but it changes types according to the masks. And I think that's really cool, honestly. Um, it's a very, it's a, it's, it's actually different. Uh, for those who know anything about Scarlet and Violet, terrestrializing has a particular way that it happens. Uh, but this, this is a bit more unique where instead of, uh, instead of um, needing to change its Terra type or anything, these masks these masks actually change the typing. Now, once you defeat Ogre Pond, um, it will join you as a new friend among your Pokemon. So Ogre Pond is now on your side. It's great. I, I think Ogre Pond's adorable. Um, Ogre Pond is also canonically female, apparently. So go Ogre Pond. I'm very happy for her. Um, the field trip ends with a sad goodbye to Carmine, who has to leave early for Blueberry Academy with Briar. You kind of learn about this in a roundabout way, too, like you were supposed to have known about this earlier. Um, but she didn't want to reveal it to you and felt sad about revealing it, but you're definitely going to see her again. And the ending credit, uh, the I guess you could say the end kind of cutscene for the Teal Mask is seeing Kieran's rage. It appears to not be satiated at all as his thirst to become stronger um, remains. And I think he refers to you as well, like being part of that kind of arc. So Kieran, Kieran had a whole switcheroonie this in the teal mask. He went from being this kind of nice kid who's fairly harmless and wouldn't hurt a fly. And a dragonfly is, is, is one of his Pokemon too, actually, but like, he went from being that kind of kid to now actually being really scary. So I don't know if he's going to become some antagonist in the Indigo Disc. Who knows? Um, at the time this episode comes out, the Indigo Disc isn't out. So I'll only know when the Indigo Disc comes out. But I'm I'm worried. I'm kind of scared. It's very ominous, that last cutscene. And seeing Kieran, like, kind of 
evolve into this more kind of angry um angry individual it was it was kind of sad to see i felt really bad but that's the way the story plays out and more importantly that concludes the story beats of the teal mask that i wanted to get out of the way for today now it is not necessarily noticeable how this storyline alone connects to japanese culture but that's what we're going to get into next going on in this storyline when it comes to where I believe cultural references are made, the, re the, the references made to Japanese culture and different angles of Japanese culture too. So uh, to start, I want to get into some general cultural elements and then I'll get more specific as we pick apart the comparisons I want to make and the specific aspects of Japanese culture that I feel are being represented in the teal mask. So uh, let's start off with, in terms of the general cultural elements, number one. Uh, so notably, there are rice paddies, open fields, a looming mountain above, and then nature surrounding uh, Masui Town and Kitakami Hall. Um, so Kitakami as a land is not heavily populated and has, it's it's more rural in nature. It's, it has that countryside appearance. Um, and when comparing this to the popular yokai tradition that has uh, existed in Japanese history, the concept of monsters, creatures, and beings of any form roaming the land, anthropomorphic or otherwise, this kind of setting is more common for those kinds of folklores and stories to take place. Now, it's not the only setting, but when we think of yokai in a historical context, that there's a lot of yokai where they're described being in some valley in the countryside or tucked away in some forest on a high mountain, that kind of a thing. So the setting of the countryside, in a way, invites mystery and intrigue, allowing for folktales to become popular or for the building of folklore to exist. Because parts of the land are kind of mysterious, they're unknown, you don't know what lies in wait there, then that allows for you to build up ideas of something could be there, that idea. The next is the focus on masks. So this connects to both Ogre Pond and the people themselves, as we know that Ogre Pond wears those four, four different masks. So masks in Japan are meant to indicate a particular being represented uh, when a mask is worn. So there are some examples like the Hyotoko mask, for example, that represents a lucky mythical spirit which has a clown-like face. Um, the Oni mask represents a demon with a comical or fearsome uh, expression, and I think that depends on circumstances. Now, for mask festival comparisons, um, Kitakami's Festival of Mask, I believe, uh, references popular mask festivals that appear in Japan, such as the Kitsune Bi Matsuri, which is centered around the folktale Kitsune uh, no Yomeiri, or Fox Bride. Uh, so participants in this festival wear fox, uh, fox masks of varying designs and makeup because it's a fox bride, so um, there's that gendered element to it too. Um, so if we compare this to our fictional Kitakami, we can see that mask fe uh, festivals serve like they have a thematic purpose as the theme of the festival mask is meant to celebrate the loyal three. In the case of Kitsune B. Matsuri, it's the Fox Bride. Um, and festival attendees wearing Jinbei is consistent with real life mask uh, 
mask festival attendees, as that's typical Matsuri or festival wear. Um, and where masks compare to Ogre Pawn is, as I said, the four masks it has in its possession. So it is possible Ogre Pawn's masks uh, references the Devil's Sword Dance, which is part of the Kitakami Michinoku traditional dance festival. And additionally, Kitakami, um, the real world Kitakami, also has a museum known as the Oni, uh, Oni no Yakata, which houses many Oni masks. So some of the designs from that museum may also be some kind of uh, like connection to the masks that we see from Ogre Pond. Um, and those masks are very well like kind of um, rendered in my opinion in the game. Like they, the masks feel very detailed and when it's terrestrialized, it's humongous. So you get a really good kind of scope of what these masks look like and the details of it. And I think that's really awesome. <laughs> Oh my god. I, I The Ogre Pond battle is actually one of my favorite, I'd, I'd say, battles from Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. It was just so well done. Um, but moving on, <laughs> I would also like to draw attention to Loyalty Plaza. This is kind of number three, if you will. That was number two, right? Number three. Um, so Loyalty Plaza, where the resting place of the Loyal Three uh, is located. So three statues were placed there to signify that they were buried there. And we also know that being interred with care, that's supposed to refer to the fact that um, people of Kitakami kind of preserved that whole folktale. That's why the signboards exist. Preserve that folktale of um, uh, of uh, the loyal three being the saviors of the land. Um, so it is possible uh, the Jizo statues would be the real world comparison to the Loyal Three receiving the statue treatment in the first place, as Jizo statues are, quote, made in the image of Jizo Bosatsu, guardian deity of children and travelers. Um, this could also imply that Okidoki, Monkey Dory, and Pheasantipity were also, uh, always protecting the people who lived in Kitakami in a spiritual sense. Um, and I'm going to kind of, uh, I'm going to talk about that right now, actually, when it comes to our Loyal Three. Um, the Loyal Three all are puns on common sayings. So okidogi is a pun on okidoki, uh, dog suggesting, like dogi dog suggesting the animal it's based on. Um, if you look at okidogi, to me it looks, it has the physique of a bear, but its head is more like a, I think a Shiba Inu? Or it's it's one of, it's, it's, it's specifically like a species of, of like uh, dogs that you find in Japan. So I think Shiba Inu might be it, but I might be wrong. Now, Monkey Dory is a spin on Hunky Dory, slang for when things are good. Monkey indicating it's based on a monkey. Um, and actually more specifically a macaque, which you find in Japan, the Japanese macaque. Finally, Pheasantipity combines pheasant and serendipity. Um, serendipity meaning unexpected or auspicious happenings. There's a playfulness in how the loyal three were conceived and is fairly consistent with their actual characterization as deceitful and rather nefarious beings. It, there's a contrast. They have super playful names and they're kind of more fun, if anything. And Pheasantipity as well um, is, is likely based off of a, speci a specific species of Japanese pheasant. So that's the other thing. They're all based on Japanese creatures, or sorry, Japanese like actual um, uh, birds, animals that you find in Japan. That's one thing. Um, but more on their characterization, it's that they have these playful names but 
there are villains of the game. There are villains of the story. And kind of like, you know, there are boss fights too, you know? Um, so I'll also the, include the descriptions we get from the game that describe how the locals view them. And this is seen on the on the map because basically when they leave Kitakami Hall after getting the masks from the locals, they split up and go to their three separate locations, right? But because they had the mochi, they're super kind of juiced up and strong. They're super powerful now. Um, so they're titanic sized. Um, and these are the descriptions that read out for them, which also connects back to the references in their names. So Okidoki, locals believe worshiping Okidoki will grant you kindness and help keep things Okidoki between you and other people. Okidoki was once a smaller and weaker Pokemon, but a desire for strength led it to gain powerful muscles. The next is Monkey Dory. Locals believe worshiping Monkey Dory leads to success in life. The doing so will make everything Hunky Dory. Monkey Dory was originally a clumsy and dim-witted Pokemon, but a longing for cleverness led it to gain great wisdom. And finally, Pheasantipity. Locals believe worshipping Pheasantipity will lead to good luck and serendipitous happenings. Pheasantipity was once a Pokemon with short, dull feathers, but a wish to be beautiful, uh, beautiful led it to gain an exquisite appearance. Um, so maybe the, this whole this whole stuff about uh, the Loyal Three and these descriptions don't overtly refer to any aspect of Japanese culture. Um, but the animals these Pokemon are based on have lots of relevance in the cultural discussion and as i've mentioned they are based off of actual animals and a bird that you find in japan um i'm gonna get into that i'm gonna get into why why that all matters so that was the general cultural elements you could say and now i want to get into the specific cultural elements where i get into more historical details references and context um so the specific cultural elements i want to focus on looks at the way uh this game highlights consistency with the yokai tradition that has existed in japan's past um so um let's let's get into how these historical elements compare to the story of the teal mask and its pokemon so firstly the idea of beings roaming the world at odd hours causing ruination or disturbances of some form um or just being kind of weird in their presence was popular during the time of a well-known scholar named toriyama sekien who lived from 1712 to 1788 um he also created okio a art um that represented japanese folklore and he helped popularize this kind of catalog of monsters yokai uh ghosts all kinds of things just appearing in japan um his encyclopedia on yokai popularized like i said the idea of yokai being present in the world and I'd say Pokemon is kind of like a fun, extremely modern successor of this idea in the form of a fictional universe where you can where you can kind of see such creatures in action, but they can be captured and understood better. So uh, I, I think it's a fun spin on this uh, time in history when this is what people would read about and staying, instead of like almost playing a video game that simulates these folklores and uh, lived experiences. So Toriyama Sekian writes the following, quote, Since times of old, the night parade of the demon horde has been passed down, copied, and kept in the houses of the great masters. There's no hope of achieving realism when it comes to the fearsome faces of things that can't be seen with the human eye. And he kind of continues on to explain the context for that particular section of his encyclopedia. Um, it's a brief foreword he poses uh, to contextualize you know, I'm writing about this, some things may not be completely accurate, but we take things with a grain of salt because yokai are yokai. Um, and this is to say that attributing accurate sourcing to yokai is difficult, but their existence should not be doubted. They're out there. Some of them are definitely out there, that kind of feeling. Um, the next uh, he describes as part of his entries in the encyclopedia, he describes the Omagatoki, the hour of meeting demons. Quote, 
Twilight represents instability, a time of day when things have a higher tendency for going weird." End quote. So the concept of oni, or demons, congregating meant that they were most likely seen during these witching hours, a time when people are not normally awake. It adds to the mystery of what uh, yokai do, how they behave, um, and so forth. Now for further context, Michael Dylan Foster says in his work called The Book of Yokai, quote, identities of kami and yokai, kami can sometimes roughly translate to god, are not set in stone. They are contingent on the perspectives of the humans interacting with them. Through appropriate human action, such as rituals of pacification, a rough spirit may be transformed into a gentle spirit." End quote. This is to say that yokai over time are not fixed to any particular meaning, and their purpose or role shifts in a way depending on the audience interacting with the yokai. And this is very important when we compare these details to Pokemon. Um, so put a pin on, put a pin on these things. Because we're going to get back to it in a, in a bit. But we have a we have a we have a we have another narrative to cover. So this is an exhaustive component, I'd say, of the historical elements. Uh, I want to talk about a, a well-known narrative in Japanese culture known as the Peach the Peach Boy. Now it is said that the Loyal Three and the Ogre story uh, pr uh, present in the DLC. It's loosely based on the Peach Boy. So I want to pick apart the story of the Peach Boy to see for ourselves in uh, in a rather summarized form because. Honestly, there's uh, there, the, the, the story, it's, it's not overly detailed, but there is a lot of content. So starting off, a grandfather and grandmother were doing their tasks, collecting twigs and washing clothes by the river. A large peach came tumbling down, arriving at the river near the grandmother. The couple brought the unusually large peach home, later splitting it in two pieces. A boy emerged from its center. The boy was named Momotaro by the grandfather. Momotaro grew up quickly and became strong. He told the grandfather and grandmother that he will travel to Devil's Island to conquer the devils. After being given dumplings, Momotaro embarks on the journey. Along the way, he meets a dog who asks where he's headed. Momotaro explains he is headed to Devil's Island. The dog becomes his companion after having a dumpling and joins him on his journey. Next, a monkey approaches Momotaro, asking the same question and wishing to also have a dumpling. Finally, a pheasant asks the same two questions of Momotaro and becomes Momotaro's final companion. All companions each have had a dumpling. The dog, the monkey, and the pheasant and Momotaro arrive at Devil's Island. Each provided aid to Momotaro upon arrival. The devils had closed their gates to the castle, so the pheasant flew up and observed the condition from on high. The monkey climbed up nimbly on the gate and succeeded in entering the castle. Momotaro and the dog pushed their way in and attacked. The pheasant picked at the devil's eyes. The monkey and dog tormented the devils by scratching and biting. The devil's uh, general fought with all his might, but nonetheless was no match for the group. The devils fell before Momotaro, saying, Never again will we torture humans and steal things, pleading for their lives. Momotaro spares the devils, taking treasures he received from them. Heading home, the dog pulled the wagon the treasure was secured to, while the monkey pushed the wagon and the pheasant tucked on the rope. Momotaro returned home to the grandfather and grandmother, a hero. So where the teal mask draws particular inspiration appears to be the dog, pheasant, and monkey, which would be the clear connections to Okidoki, pheasant, dippity, and monkey dory. The full story of the loyal three and ogre uh, kind of, it feels consistent with some in some ways with the story of the peach boy and it is simply that the story is turned on its head to make the loyal three the villains um likened more to the devils of this story so while the dog pheasant and monkey are part of the good guy camp um 
the Loyal 3's characterization is actually, well, that's what people thought in Kitakami, but the truth is that actually they're more like the devils. Now, Momotaro is in a clear kind of comparison or parallel to Ogrepan, who despite being based on an oni or demon, is the hero throughout. Sideboard number three directly references the behavior of oni or demons, with the description sounding a lot like the one we got for Omagatoki, the hour of meeting demons, which is Twilight. Um, I thought that was fun too, like reading the third sign word, I'm like, this definitely reads like something you would hear about a yokai. Now, let us also take Foster's note about how yokai, um, uh, about yokai and how their roles can shift in meaning. So Ogrepan's characterization shifts due to the truth unraveling. It didn't take some kind of, you could say, ritual, but in a Pokemon context, we can use that comparison loosely. Ogrepan goes from being feared to revered, and the, ver uh, the reverse for the Loyal Three also occurs. Um, although the fear takes on the form of disgust as well, since people... Uh, kind of felt Carmine's frustration at believing in a farce for too long, so uh, it's not that they immediately just were scared of the Loyal Three, it's a combination of like, what are they going to do to us now, or that kind of a thing. But by the point that uh, the uh, people of Kitakami realize the truth, thanks to Kieran, um, it happens after you've subdued the Loyal Three, so that also does help in not being as fearful of them. Also considering that the, the descriptions for the Titan versions of the Loyal Three, it has those folkloric elements to that, as in, you know, if you pray to them, you'll get good luck, or if you pray to them, you'll, you know, gain wisdom, if you pray to them, you'll gain strength, that kind of thing. Um, and watching over them and protecting them in a spiritual uh, uh, sense. Uh, so even the naming of the Pokemon, I have an idea that it might be semi-fabricated and adjusted, or like maybe adjusted to circumstances. So, um, because like like with the peach boy we know dog pheasant monkey and those are all clearly the inspirations for okie dokie monkey dory and pheasant dippity i think their names kind of they they maybe got those names received them over time because in the story of the man and the ogre the truth behind ogre pond and the loyal three uh it just describes them as the greedy pokemon type of thing only the signboards give them the name of okie dokie monkey dory and pheasant dippity so it's entirely possible that they were just given those names they didn't know what the like if those pokemon even had names uh because Ogre Pond has always been Ogre Pond, but uh, maybe Okie Dokie, Monkey Dory, and Pheasant were given those names rather than uh, having them in the first place. And that it, it's kind of an invented, invented, uh, invented naming sense because people believe them to be, you know, protectors of Kitakami, and that if you pray to them, you get blessings, type of thing. Um, that was that was the image that was built up of the Loyal Three, and obviously it's all a farce because they were actually. The villains um so i i feel like uh the definitions are so contrasting to the truth that part of me feels like the names were invented and maybe they have different names altogether who knows but canonically they are okie dokie monkey dory and pheasantipity their names are so fun to say by the way i love the puns now if the loyal three's goal was to always steal the masks from ogre pond in their greedy quest much like the devils in the peach story uh, peach boy story let's get back to what i was actually talking about ogre pond remained benign throughout and took on the task of defeating the loyal three just like what peach boy does in defeating the devils on devil's island these parallels make for interesting instances where I'd say this video game feels like a fun, realized take on a classic story, specifically in the DLC, in the Teal Mask. Um, and it's important to note that, like, I'm combining different aspects of Japanese culture in this analysis. Because we have the yokai tradition, 
where Toyama Sekien, you know, details yokai, but then we also have this common folktale that deals with more supernatural elements more than yokai itself. It's kind of humans versus devils rather than purely humans versus yokai, which is a more kind of nebulous, broad uh, category. Um, it is still noteworthy, though, to point out that the devils that... Uh, are on Devil's Island in the Peach Boy story are still similar to the demons that you could say are described by Toriyama Sekian. So it gives us some consistency to work with when it comes to characterizing the Loyal Three and Ogre Pond, even if we are combining different things at once. And I also think, like I said, I'm pretty sure like Omagatoki, the hour uh, of uh, the demons meeting, that that applies to the Loyal Three as well, because who's to say that it didn't happen at Twilight when they stole the masks originally from Ogre Pond? Like, that's when the weird happenings will occur, you know? Or maybe that's also when they had their big fight and the Loyal Three ultimately lost to Ogre Pond, but people couldn't tell what was happening, right? Um, it's during an odd time. So th there's a case to be made for that too, and I find that to be an interesting connection or comparison. Um, and, you know, there is a more emotional angle with Ogre Pond's character, if we talk about Ogre Pond itself, which maybe distances the Pokemon from the strict characterization of an Oni-like yokai. Ogre Pond's tale is quite tragic, and it was left alone in the world because of the Loyal Three's treacherous behavior. So it's, it's worth connecting back that, uh, connecting this back to the human experience that we see in the Teal Mask story, because, uh, so... Like, Ogre Pond becomes more accessible and closer to you as the player. Um, so there's not much of a mystery after a certain point. Once you know the truth, Ogre Pond, like, there's a tangibility. There's a real a realness to it, uh, rather than this sense that we don't know all the sides of Ogre Pond. Ogre Pond feels kind of like the actual playful one and the actual mischievous one, whereas, like, the loyal three feel more kind of cunning and evil in, in a way. So drawing comparisons to Japanese culture, I think, is mostly relegated to the backstories of Ogre Pond and the Loyal Three, the signboards, and then the festival, rather than kind of digging into the more individual aspects of the Pokemon themselves. Um, I also think, like, if we consider those descriptions that we get from the game about Okidoki, Monkey Dory, and Pheasantipity, it's that it, they have a positive connotation to it. So I'd say that, you know, People believe that if you kind of pray to Monkey Dory, you'll gain knowledge or wisdom type of thing. But I think it's actually that Monkey Dory is a bit more cunning and sly and it uses that knowledge for manipulation rather. So there's also that contrast of, as a more of an aside, that the descriptions of Okidogi, Monkey Dory, and Pheasantipity are actually the opposite. Anyways, the story of the Loyal Three and the Ogre, in my opinion, it gives us some nice insight about I guess, ways in which Japanese culture can appear in Pokemon video games, particularly in the Teal Mask. Um, and with this story as well, I actually want to touch on kind of like a theme or the concept of xenophobia, which is an irrational fear of others, outsiders. So while not related to cultural elements, specifically the Teal Mask storylines, both of Ogre Pond's past and the one that you play through, actually exemplify this theme where outsiders are not to be trusted, believed in, or kind of favored particularly, Ogre Pond and, you know, her friend were viewed as, as such for just being different. They came from somewhere else, and then Kitakami uh, did not initially welcome them. And Carmine is initially tough on you for the same reason. You're an outsider entering her beloved hometown, hoping you don't somehow desecrate Kitakami um, with something she was looking out for initially. And she has a change of heart once she learns the truth and sees the value in your allyship. And hey, it's not so bad if people come and visit Kitakami. She she comes around. Um, Kieran has actually has a reversed character compared to his sister. So he's curious about you and doesn't immediately 
act hostile to you because you come from a different land, but he ends up feeling jealous and betrayed by you specifically because you come from Paldea, shown when he realizes Ogrepan likes you more than him, despite him believing in Ogrepan when no one else did. Um, and the end of the sibling story reflects this. So while Carmine more emotionally bids farewell and looks forward to seeing you later, Kieran is brewing with intense anger over your presence. It's an extreme contrast to how they initially felt about you when you first arrived in Kitakami. And the people of Kitakami, of course, also experience kind of a parallel arc as Carmine did, where they celebrate Ogapon upon learning the truth, thanks to Kieran, um, when they initially believed in falsities. So the point in case, the idea of fearing others because they are different than you for one reason or another is something the game does an interesting, it has an interesting take, I suppose, on the concept, playing also into the fear of the unknown and the narrative slash historical elements that influence those biases. So, namely that the loyal three were mistakenly deemed heroes and ogres became feared, as well as Kitakami citizens becoming uh, protective of their own land in a consistent sense. So that left Grandpa, who's who hails from a mask-making family, to be the only one who believes otherwise. So that would conclude our discussion on the cultural elements that I would say appear in the Teal Mask story, the characters, and specifically the Pokemon of Okidogi, Monkey Dory, Fezendipity, and Ogre Pond. But our discussion, folks, does not actually end here. So the following section, I'll consider it an optional listen because this actually connects more to a, a different Pokemon game, a different episode, if you will. Um, the following section will tie back to Pokemon Legends Arceus. Uh, so if you do want to feel like you have some informed opinion on Pokemon Legends Arceus. I suggest listening to the reference episode. It's listed in the Lori's side reference episodes. Uh, it's also a season four episode. So it's fairly recent compared to this one. Um, listen to that for any background needed. And I'm going to be theorizing a bit in this next section as well. Um, so it, it, you again, if you're if you don't if you're not particularly interested in how an aspect of the teal mask actually connects back to Pokemon Legends Arceus, then you can just skip this and go straight to the conclusion. But the next section, I'm going to talk about the character of Perrin, who she is, her survey quest, and how this side story still very much participates in this kind of Pokemon yokai comparison. This, like, it still kind of plays into the overall cultural elements that I've discussed. So let's get into that, folks. Alright folks, so this section we'll talk about Perrin's survey quest. So who the heck is Perrin? Why should we care about her? And what does her survey quest offer? So Perrin's uh, character, she was introduced in the trailers for the Teal Mask, and actually a friend of mine had very aptly pointed out her resemblance to a certain character. A character named Adaman, who appear appears in Pokemon Legends Arceus. I am having trouble with vowels today. We know for fact now that she is indeed related to Adamant, it's canonical, um, but we should work backwards first and start uh, start with when we first meet her in the Teal Mask. Um, so, firstly, she is located in Masui Town alongside a Hisubian Growlithe. That will mean nothing to you if you didn't play Pokemon Legends Arceus, so I'm going to try and explain the relevance of that. Several Pokemon games have introduced the idea of regional variants of a Pokemon, so depending on the region you're in, a familiar Pokemon may have a different form, and that'll suit its environments better. It's, it's, it's like evolutionary adaptation that we get in the real world, like snakes evolved from lizards um, that opted to become 
like a burrowing type of species and thus lost limbs in favor of slithering mobility. Snakes can do all kinds of things because they don't have limbs. Um, but enough about snakes. So Growlithe, which is a dog-like Pokemon, has been around for uh, been around long enough for anyone familiar with Pokemon to know what it looks like. It's it's just a nice little dog. Um, and that includes its evolution, Arcanine, which is a much larger dog. It's a fire type. It's a very nice Pokemon. Enter Pokemon Legends Arceus, where both Growlithe and its evolution, Arcanine, like they they receive a an additional typing and a new form. So they, they look different from uh, normal uh, Growlithe and Arcanine, which would be Cantonian, because that's when we were first ever introduced to Growlithe as a Pokemon and Arcanine as a Pokemon. That would be in the Kanto region. So here they're Hisuian Growlithe and Hisuian Arcanine. So what confused me um, were several things. His Hisuian refers to Hisui, Hisui being the name of the region known to the past. In modern day, Hisui is now known as the Sinnoh region. So Pokemon Legends Arceus takes place in a in like a bygone era, if you will. Like the that environment doesn't it doesn't look the same as it does. It's a completely different kind of period in history too. What people wore was different, the technology is different, the understanding of Pokemon was different. Um that that kind of stuff. So like I said, several things confused me initially with the character of Parent seeing this Pokemon in the first place. Um, what confused me is that Hisui, like I said, is it, it's a region that existed in the past because it's modern day, it's the Sinnoh region. Um, and I, I've argued as well in my Pokemon Legends Arceus episodes, where like any episode where I've talked about this game, um, Hisui is more likened to the period of history that Toriyama Sekian was kind of alive in as well. It's 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 similar to that period in time where writing about yokai was popular. Um, as well, the script for the signboards in Kitakami looks a lot like the script and the characters we see in, in Pokemon Legends Arceus, like the, the writing characters. Um, so my, my first question upon meeting Perrin was, why does she have a have a Hisuian Growlithe in modern day? And why do we see what I believe is Hisuian scripture in Kitakami? Because that's supposed to belong to the past, right? I didn't have an answer initially for either of those questions, but maybe we'll try and answer that. So let's get into Perrin's survey quest. So to start us off, new Pokemon are introducing Kitakami outside of the Pokemon you already caught in Paldea. In Paldea, there are 400 Pokemon to discover. In Kitakami, there's an additional 200 to find. So in order for this quest to initiate, the survey quest, you need to record data for at least 150 of these new Pokemon. Once you've done so, uh, you hear from Perrin that she's trying to photograph a rare Pokemon sighting. There are tales of the Blood Moon Beast, and she hopes to see this ferocious beast in person. Um, so again, this quest will only initiate and she'll only tell you these things if you have at least 150 new Pokemon recorded. In Kitakami, we see interesting connections to Hisui, starting with her having a Hisuian Growlithe, right? The next connection is an area known as the Timeless Woods, located in the northeast corner of Kitakami. It's this it's kind of a, it's a rather kind of, you know, elusive location, kind of out of the way. It has a waterfall and a kind of pond area, very heavily wooded as the name indicates. Our third connection, you could say, is finding the Pokemon known as White Basculin. White Basculin was introduced in Pokemon Legends Arceus and 
uh, evolves into Basket Legion, and Basket Legion is said to comprise the souls of fallen Basculin assimilated into this very powerful fish. More yokai vibes from this Pokemon, if you ask me. Now we know, uh, like we, so we know that we know that we now have. You could say the game is outwardly showing us two different Hisuian uh, Pokemon now. Because Basculin is a, is a his, white Basculin is a his, Hisuian Pokemon. So we now have, like I said, two Hisuian Pokemon present in Kitakami, um, and one of them's located in the Timeless Woods. Timeless indicating that there's longevity to this area. Um, and also that if something's timeless, that means that there's an aspect of it that hasn't changed from the past, if you will. Um, so that's another interesting aspect of the Timeless Woods, is that how how does how 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 is this connected to the past in a way, you know? Um, and that the longevity of white basculin as well shouldn't be doubted. It's still alive today, right? Because if Hisui was in the past, but white basculin's still around today, then that, that's a thing. Now let's wind back to the Blood Moon Beast. So Perrin will inform you that in order to potentially see this beast, there needs to be a full moon in the sky, I believe, with fog present in the timeless woods. And she'll also show you a photo of the beast in question, so like where one potential sighting was type of thing. So it gives you a rough but still vague sense of what you're up against. Like you're able to glean that this is this is something big. Like this this Pokemon's like big. Whatever this beast is, it's big. Um and it has a like a glaring like red eye too so it's like the blood moon i think terminology is pretty on the nose so um you head to the timeless woods before the expected time joining perrin at her campsite and hearing her wonder about her goals as she is not entirely confident as a photographer but she kind of ponders things and you basically are getting prepared for the survey quest. So with the moon phase and the weather conditions met, the survey quest begins. Perrin will ask you to take photos of 10 different kinds of Pokemon that can be sighted in the woods as a way of learning more about the Pokemon and biding your time as the Blood Moon Beast has yet to appear. So I believe the scripture that we see on the signboards in Kitakami is one kind of callback to Pokemon Legends Arceus. And we have some more fun callbacks here, where the music changes to that of the Heartwood as you're doing the survey quest. So the Heartwood is a track that plays in the eponymous area of the Heartwood, located in the Obsidian Fieldlands, which is located in Hisui. So that appears in Pokemon Legends Arceus, so that's a fun little music, music reference, right? Now, anyways, you take photos of several different Pokemon, Perrin will give you some comment about its behavior and will urge you to keep going until you get the final picture. This is when the Blood Moon Beast makes its appearance. The music that plays when you encounter and eventually battle the Blood Moon Beast also references battle music that's present in Pokemon Legends Arceus, so the connections are like very strong to, to this game. The Blood Moon Beast is revealed to be a unique form of Ursaluna, which upon traveling to a new land took on different adaptive traits to reflect its environment. Ursaluna, like White Basculin and Hisuian Growlithe, uh, was also introduced in Hisui as an evolution of a bear Pokemon known as Ursaring, going from a bipedal to a quadrupedal creature. However, Blood Moon Ursaluna is bipedal, though with a more fearsome appearance and a Blood Moon symbol on its forehead. Um, being a formidable opponent, Perrin takes photos, comments on the creature, but she instructs you that you battle it, weaken it down, and then hopefully you can capture it. After completing this task, Perrin is excited that she was able to photograph this extremely elusive being. It has a kind of folkloric kind of element to it. It's a rare sighting of a... It's 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 a little bit of like your Loch Ness monster situation where people may have seen it, it might have been pictured, it might have been sighted, but can't confirm type of thing. Um, So... 
her succeeding in the survey quest with your help reignites her passion for photography. Go Perrin. I'm happy she got her confidence back. And having success, uh, successfully completed the quest, you both return to Masui Town, where she gives you one of her Hisui Growlithe for you to raise. Adaman, her ancestor, always believed in using your time wisely, and she echoes this sentiment as she bids you farewell with hopes of seeing you again soon. This quest was an absolute joy to complete. The references to Pokemon Legends Arceus are splendid, but most of all, this explains something major for me that I feel silly for not realizing sooner. I posed two questions. Why do we see um, Hisuian Growlithe in this game initially? Why do, why do we see Hisuian Pokemon appearing in Kitakami and in Paldea, which is like a more modern Pokemon timeline? Like Hisui's in the past. Why are we seeing Hisuian Pokemon in the present? Um, and then why are we also seeing Hisuian scripture in the present? So I'd always believed that Hisuian Pokemon were of their time period, meaning they are not Pokemon you can find in present day, especially considering that Hisui has become the Sinnoh region, and also that Hisui no longer exists in name, right? It's the Sinnoh region now. But I also thought about the fact that in Sinnoh, your starter Pokemon, every Pokemon game has three starter Pokemon to choose from. In the Sinnoh region, your starter Pokemon are Piplup, Chimchar, and Turtwig. They are not common Pokemon in the region, hence why you have to choose one of the three. But in Hisui, in the past, um, their populations were high enough that you could find Piplup, Chimchar, and Turtwig in the wild. Piplup's a penguin, um, Chimchar's based off a monkey, and Turtwig's based off a turtle. So, like, they existed, there was enough of them in the past. The explanation for Hisuian Pokemon to exist in modern day is that they are like endangered species in the real world. That's, that's my theory. Um, and obviously this discussion has less to do with yokai, it's actually more of, of a folklore section, if you will. Just the idea of something being attributed to legend, um, and then being able to find it, that's, that's what this section, I think, covers mostly with the survey quest. Uh, but the point I'm making right now is something more existential itself when it comes to Pokemon and how they survive individually. So I didn't really think about things that way, so basically you can still have there's several other Hisuian Pokemon in existence, but you can have your White Basculins and you can have your Hisuian Growlithe still exist, but they just don't have the numbers that they used to have in the past, that kind of thing, because there's a lot of them in the past. Um, also, that would be the only reason why you don't see them in older Pokemon games type of thing. They, they ex existed as Hisuian regional variants, but Hisui no longer exists, and it's a Sinnoh region now, so maybe where you find them, it's a lot harder to. It's a lot harder to find them, because there's less of them. Less of them in total. Um, so, I I feel like this is an explanation for how White Basculin and this unique Blood Moon Ursaluna can also exist in Kitakami, despite being Hisuian Pokemon in essence. So, these Pokemon could have been brought from... Hisui come to different lands. In Pokemon Legends Arceus, they have a dialogue about that too, which is that the people that settle in the prominent human settlement of Jubilee Village, they came from a different they came from a different land. Um, they and that there are indigenous populations to Hisui, um, known as collectively the Celestica people, and they've always kind of been there. Um, so uh, but that Pokemon have also been brought into Hisui as well. Not all of them uh, existed in Hisui, and the leading Pokemon professor in Hisui, in Pokemon Legends Arceus, is, po is Professor Laventon, who also is not from Hisui. So uh, the idea of uh, Pokemon existing outside of their natural habitats is also still entirely possible. Um, and you could say the, the games even play around with that idea anyway, which is that Pokemon from older games can still appear in newer games, like normal Growlithe and Arcanine can be found in Paldea. But um, in 
Kitakami, like you have white masculine just existing there, you know? Um, and that's very interesting because they're also part of the Pokedex. I think Blood, so Blood Moon, Ursaluna, and White Basculin and Basket Legion are the only Hisuian Pokemon, you could say, that uh, um, are recorded in the Pokedex. And I think everything else you can just have. Like, I don't, I don't know, I don't think Hisuian Growlithe is actually counted as a Pokedex entry. So it's not necessarily counted towards anything. But it's the idea that they can exist in Kitakami, which feels like a, a modern day location. Um, so, yeah, and I know Blood Moon Ursaluna now, it was introduced in Kitakami, it was introduced in this DLC, so it's technically introduced in Scarlet and Violet and not in um, Hisui itself, but it's certainly a variant on a Hisuian Pokemon, so I'd still say Blood Moon Ursaluna is a Hisuian Pokemon in essence. Um, so this this quest, this survey quest, is interesting in making legends and folktales have this kind of it, it, there's there's like a materialization to it where they're not just legends and folk tales and they can actually exist in a place called the timeless woods of all place um while clearly referencing a game that participates in pokemon being treated as dangerous with all kinds of tales to support the aggressive behavior they exhibit that's the other thing is this game having any form of connection to pokemon legends rcs is fascinating because um the scripture i believe to answer my second question about why kitakami has uh the same kind of scripture as what you see in pokemon legends arceus would just be that they have the same writing conventions it's it's still the same language it's just going to look different than paldea and uh um all the other pokemon regions that exist that type of thing um and as well that would also say that in kitakami they've maintained that writing tradition it hasn't changed or evolved over time so that's why it, it looks the same as hisuian scripture um but more in Pokemon Legends Arceus as well, is that basically almost all Pokemon, in a sense, were relegated to a kind of folktale, if you will. In Pokemon Legends Arceus, the storyline is hinged on everyone else except you having any sense that Pokemon can become domesticated and be creatures that can live alongside humans because in the timeline of pokemon legends arceus humans and pokemon are distinctly separate they do not cooperate humans live in fear of pokemon and there's enough pokemon out there that exhibit this kind of aggressive behavior that you're not sure what they're actually like and maybe they can be docile and they can be you know perfectly fine but you 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 don't know that and you don't know what else hides around in Hisui and what is relegated to legend or not that type of thing so um again connecting Kitakami back to Pokemon Legends Arceus is a very fascinating connection to me but to summarize this quest both from a game playing a storytelling standpoint from both of those um perspectives uh this quest offers some creativity in how we think about Pokemon, like how I got super existential, um, Pokemon being more like real animals in some way, while still incorporating those kind of folktale elements we see in the Teal Mask's main story. So the idea of oh, the Loyal Three and Ogre Pond existing, Blood Moon or Saluna, still the same. It's still this, this Pokemon that's kind of relegated to a legend, and then you're able to discover it for yourself. And it is a very fearsome looking creature. Like it's like compared to normal Ursaluna or Ursa Ring, like this is a, a very scary evolution in my opinion. The they did a very good job making Blood Moon Ursaluna look like this this beast, right? Um, but with all of that out of the way, let's finally conclude the episode.
So what have we learned, folks? The references to Japanese culture in the Teal Mask storyline appear to be fairly subtle, but still have some obvious elements with some diggings, uh, with those connections to yokai and uh, the Peach Boy story. Interesting themes of outsiders versus insiders, myth versus truth, and this deliberate characterization of our yokai-like Pokemon, you know, Blood Moon or Saluna, Ogre Pond, Okidoki, Monkey Dory, and Pezzendipity, make this a rounded experience despite the short length of the storyline itself. The Teal Mask does not take very long to complete if you just kind of steamroll through it. Um, so what I described may sound like things take some time, but overall it's it's fairly short. The ways in which the Loyal Three and Ogre Pond appear to reference well-known folklore and some ways the behavior and in some ways the behavior of Yokai make this first half of the Pokemon Scarlet and Violet DLC very engaging. Um, it is yet to be seen um, at the time this episode is out. If the Indigo Disc will be anything like what we got in the Teal Mask, I don't have the sense that that's the case, but they might still play back into it. Um, outside of this cultural analysis, you can say that there are aspects of the story that, you know, it, it's kind of predictable from a game-playing standpoint, such as Ogre Pond being the hero in actuality, that type of thing. And maybe a vested interest in this cultural analysis may only come from anyone that, you know, well, that has a vested interest in seeing cultures in the Pokemon universe. If you're not seeking this kind of information out, maybe this won't be intellectually intellectually stimulating. Um, uh, and the storyline alone may not be an intellectually an intellectually stimulating experience. So it's only if you take interest in these kinds of things. But what you expect out of the Teal Mask story is just entirely dependent on your expectations. I went in having a sense that this game was going to connect back to the to Pokemon Legends Arceus in a way because because of the scripture alone that we got on the signboards. Um, uh, and then once I started playing the game, realizing that white basculin can be captured, I'm like, okay, there are some very clear references here. And then Perrin being a descendant of Adaman, who is one of the Celestica people, he leads the Diamond Clan. He's a very important person, actually, in the context of Pokemon Legends Arceus as a character and in a broader kind of cultural sense. So the fact that she's actually a descendant of his, like, again, very clear references to Pokemon Legends Arceus. Um, I went in with this expectation that the Teal Mask was was going to have these kind of cultural elements to it where maybe there will be some parallels to historical elements from the real the real world type of thing and i feel my expectations were met but all of the things i described purely come from that perspective and having that expectation in the first place and not that everyone's going to get the same thing out of the teal mask story so i just wanted to acknowledge that at the end of the day it's still just a video game and it had a story but the comparisons and parallels i drew it's not meant to argue that the story of the teal mask explicitly considers all these things because once again um i just feel that these are like you know they've been listed as sources of inspiration for ogre pond the loyal three and kitakami itself um, so I only kind of dug up what I felt was, you know, there's a strong case to make for and what I was interested in kind of explaining. The, this is where I felt the connections are strongest and how it ties back into these cultural historical elements. Um, so that, that's what I wanted to talk about. Uh, but from what I've reviewed and from my own game playing experience, uh, like, I, like I say, there's, I feel a strong case to argue for the moments where the teal mask takes inspiration from Japanese culture. And I find that to be pretty cool because all the all the Pokemon games, all the core series Pokemon games do a version of it. They still certainly do this thing where, um, like if you listen to my Heart Gold and Soul Silver Pokemon, if you listen to that episode, you'll, uh, you'll know that I talk about these elements in uh, 
that game as well. Uh, this idea of Japanese culture being present in some way uh, in Pokemon. It's it's part of the universe. It's part of the experience. And then there's other games that don't feel as much in that way, but the Teal Mask certainly does. And once again, it's pretty cool stuff. This is the lore research that has findings on what there is to know about cultural references in the Teal Mask in Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Thanks for tuning in, folks, and I'll see you next time.